Welcome, people, to the Watchdog. This is Low Key on Mint Press. As you know, weekly we are going against the grain, covering the stories which the mainstream media regularly shies away from. Please do support us by clicking like, share, and subscribing and commenting down below, and also supporting us through Patreon if you can. So, this week we are joined by two special guests. We're joined by Professor David Miller, formerly of Bristol University, and also we're joined by Zishan Ali from Smile to Jannah. I was hoping you would add something extra in there about me as well. <laughs> what should I add? I think, you know what you should add? <laughs> <laughs> what should I, you should... Yeah. <laughs> You should you should also add that mm-hmm. I'm an anarchist. And an agri-academic activist. activist alphabet in an ambulance. <laughs> Aki, I'm, Aki, I'm actually I, anti-arrogant uh, artist that asking American accents by accident. <laughs> I like it, I like it. Come on, bro. Come on, bro. Respect to my brother Loki. I know he's going to cut this out. but <laughs> Not necessarily. We might keep it still. Keep uh, it. I hope so, because, I mean, uh, I don't want to make you seem like uh, older than you are, but I mean, back in the days... The stuff that the brothers would put in the bars, like a lot of brothers would be sitting there with a with a pen and paper, like, oh, oh he said Lumumba, Mossadegh, who, who's this BAE? First in my scope is BAE Systems, specializing <laughs> in killing people from a distance. What? Who's yeah. BAE Systems? Let me Google it. Oh, damn. Lockheed Martin. Oh, Rolls-Royce. Some people think Rolls-Royce only made cars. Oh, let me check this out. <laughs> so it's it's stuff that we've so lost cute. from from the, so the, the industry at the moment, people mm. don't have the guts and the cojones to, to stand up. That's so sweet, because it was done by certain people, it definitely helped us and, and gave us, you know, something to work with. And I hope this, this discussion, this discussion as well, we're going to be dropping bars. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> rather than, you know, on the number one charts, forget this, mate. This is the charts. Like, we're going to be dropping some <laughs> serious bars over here. We were wow. talking off, off camera as well. And some of the stuff that Loki was saying, I'm so excited about this podcast, guys. Hi. Sit with your wife, sit with your mother, with a pen and paper and make notes, guys, because th- this is going to be beautiful. Wow, thank you so much, bro. That's so sweet. Man. You're amazing, bro. <laughs> Professor David Miller, formerly of Bristol University, until he was fired after a several-year campaign to push him out of his job. We will get into that in a minute. And the interesting thing that ties together these two guests is that Smile to Jannah actually took it upon himself to publish a petition to support David Miller following his firing from Bristol University. Now, that petition actually accumulated around 40,000 signatures independently, organically. Um, Zishan Ali also made a video um, about David Miller's case. And this was actually a real exercise in independent media. So really to start off, I just wanted to ask you, how did you come across the case of David Miller? And what do you think it says about uh, the wider push within our society to silence pro-Palestinian thinkers? I I think um, Twitter Twitter is such a fantastic tool when it comes to following independent journalists and then having the feed where you're just scrolling down and you're you're able to kind of puzzle together certain stories and certain ideas, which uh, it would be a real disappointment if we were to use uh, to to lose Twitter. But Twitter itself, I think, uh, has been very kind of useful and instrumental to me, even to know about. Um, David Miller as well and what was happening with him and I think it just accumulated to a point where I was like you know what like this is getting ridiculous now like enough's enough like even professors at universities and he hasn't even done anything he hasn't done anything like and the thing is it's this mentality that if you're like oh oh, it's just him oh it's just them oh it's just those guys there it's just a matter of time till it comes knocking on your doorstep and there's no one left to defend you absolutely so that's so that's the mentality that kind of followed that it's an accumulation like you said of the constant censoring of 
pro-Palestinian voices. We saw it from back in the days when you guys would be uh, rapping on the on the radio with Charlie Sloth. Anytime you'd say free Palestine, we'd just hear Charlie Sloth's explosions. Yeah. It was, that's what it was. And it's just it just became frustrating that it's just happening. And then whenever something happens, oh, yeah, 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 freedom of speech, Mike. It's freedom of speech. <laughs> so it, you know what? It's come to, to, to a time that, yeah, man, like it, something had to be done about it in whatever means possible. Yeah. And if you do that, then uh, if everybody plays their part, bro, yeah. that, that's what it comes down to in the end, isn't it? Everybody plays their part, then something can get done. If everybody's shying away and worried about every little thing, then you can't. Absolutely. And I think what you're referencing there is the case of Mike Righteous on fire in the booth delivering the sentence, I can say free Palestine. And free Palestine is actually edited out of freestyle. This ain't changing me. I still have the same beliefs. I can scream free Palestine. So there you have Mike Righteous attempting to deliver the words free Palestine. You know, many people view this sort of censorship of pro-Palestinian ideas in British society as sort of beginning with the Corbynism um, movement. But actually, it, it precedes that, as we've seen with the Mike Righteous thing and obviously the case of Ken Loach also getting his, uh, his play cancelled um, back in the 80s. You know, there is a precedent for all of this stuff. But... I want to hear from David now. David, do you have a message for Smile to Jannah? And would you like to say anything to him about that petition that he started for you? Well, I mean, I can only say um, the uh, the 40,000 signatures was a pretty extraordinary thing. Uh, and they, I mean, it's way more than the, the signatures, by the way, that I got in letters to support me uh, from uh, people in the university world, etc. So it was an extraordinary thing to have that many signatures. And I, I obviously I thank you greatly for that. I think it does say something, though, about the way in which uh, um, Muslim political activism operates in the UK. You know, that it, it is something which is very significant, but people don't really realise this the, the way in which the Muslim community is plugged into uh, global politics much better than than uh, white people in Britain, for example. And I think that, that that's something which those of us who want to see change in this country should remember that there's a, a deep well of political awareness in the Muslim community. And I thank Zishan very much for uh, uh, con uh, connecting me with that a little bit. So there we get uh, David um, thanking you for the petition and for your work to try and help him. It's important, you know, because he not only is being used as a case and a sort of stick to beat other people with, mm -hmm. that people that have spoken up for him and supported him publicly have also had a hard time. But, you know, as you demonstrated, there's tens of thousands of people, at least in the country, mm. that support him, support his work. Yes, um, and support people like him as well. Absolutely, absolutely. 100%. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And David, can you just break down what exactly happened to you. I think you should call him David the legend. <laughs> <laughs> um, David, uh, the legend, <laughs> David, the legend, if you can just break down now, what exactly happened to you at Bristol university? There was a three year campaign against me. Uh, and, uh, I could tell you this, uh, in great detail, but, uh, for the sake of brevity, let's start with the fact that I did a lecture on Islamophobia, where I mentioned the fact that Zionists are involved in spreading Islamophobia, which, of course, is a matter of fact. And uh, some students didn't like that. They complained uh, via an Israel lobby group. And eventually, I was found not guilty uh, on all counts on that, uh, that particular complaint by an external QC. Then some six weeks after that, I'd been found not guilty. I went on a, a, a Zoom meeting and I said that I'd been attacked and complained about by the head of the Bristol Jewish Society, a Zionist group, and by the head of the Union of Jewish Students, a Zionist group. Uh, and um, uh, that then unleashed a further complaint against me and a further investigation where I was found not guilty of anti-Semitism. But nevertheless, it was it was concluded that the way in which I'd used the words that I had used was was problematic, and they, they sacked me. So I'm currently in a process where I've gone through an appeal, which has failed, and I'm now going to an industrial tribunal which I can tell you, I think this is perhaps the first place I've said this, I can tell you will happen from the 16th of October next year, 2023, which you know is uh, two years after me being sacked. Um, and we will have our day in court, we'll have two weeks in court to show that the university was wrong to sack me. And indeed that they've 
discriminated against me on the grounds of my anti-Zionist beliefs. So that, that's uh, um, watch this space and we'll, we'll see how that goes. Thank you for that, David. I mean, the main topic of what we're going to speak about today is the World Cup in Qatar. Could we just start, though, with what do you think was the best upset that we saw? You know, this is a World Cup that has been defined by the underdogs um, defeating the well-established, mainly Western European, uh, powerful football teams. Um, there's been some real, real surprises there. So which would you say was the most surprising upset that you saw? There's just so many to pick from. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there's so many, bro. I mean, from the matches themselves, the win of uh, Tunisia over France, then you've got the win of Saudi over Argentina, just the the, the crowd itself, how lively it was. And some of the brothers, they were saying that, you know, why is it that these that these teams are suddenly performing well? Because the the crowd does have an impact. Being on a home or a home field, um, I mean, that definitely played its part. Having the people on your side, rather than jeering at you, rather than you know looking down at you, they are looking up to you. They're respecting mm-hmm. you. That has. Uh, a psychological impact on you as well. So definitely we saw teams do phenomenally well. On top of that, it was fantastic to see um, even women being uh, comfortable because women, they were comfortable there. You had, a, and this was on a telegraph. Your telegraph, ironically, out of the um, papers uh, was reported police constables that were impressed with the lack of alcohol. You had you know, women that said that, you know, we're, we're comfortable there. We're not getting sexually harassed. It's so strange to not being catcalled. It's so strange to be able to enjoy this with our family. So uh, experiencing a alcohol-free culture and also a culture in which not a single English fan was arrested mm-hmm. to such a degree that the police even said we could even use that as, you know, uh, as, as a case to kind of stop that here. Yeah. I don't think... Uh, I don't think sad people will be happy with that. It was anything, anything yeah. and everything that they could do to rubbish the tournament, yeah. they were trying to do. And it, it, to, to such a degree, even of Moroccan fans, yeah. um, sorry, Moroccan players hugging their mothers mm. that was depicted on Dutch television as, you know, the, the guy was holding up a picture of monkeys hugging. Yeah. So you were seeing that, again, Moroccan players raising the Shahada finger likened to ISIS. Whilst again, in both of these scenarios, there were pictures of Messi hugging his mother. No no monkey pictures there. Mm. Then on the other hand, we're seeing them raising a Palestinian flag, the Mm. team players themselves. Whilst (laughs) whilst when I was watching it, you could see the the cameras wouldn't allow that, but still it got picked up and it was all over Twitter. You could see that in every single stadium, they were even shouting and proclaiming, you know, a chance of Palestine as well. That was a victory. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting to me the way in which class war was brought into the culture war. Um, And in a way, you have, particularly the BBC, which militates aggressively on a daily basis against the rights of railway workers, um, nurses and postal workers in this country, working very hard to curtail their strikes and to really push the government line, suddenly became... Uh, the champion station of workers' rights in the Gulf. Now, I think it's important that we're (laughs) clear about the way that that has developed. You know, Qatar, for example, it was late among the other Gulf areas to come under control as a British protectorate in uh, 1916. The others preceded it. Bahrain was really the seat of British power um, there. And the way in which this integration of the Gulf into the global economy formed uh, labor rights in the country. So for example, you had at that stage, um, you know, whether it's pearls, whether it's dates, whether it's ivory, these things being um, exported, this is preceding oil from the Gulf. The norms and the uh, dynamics that governed the way that people worked in that place were formed by the British Empire, 
you know, and Britain has been able to sort of maintain this useful fiction, which is that it was very arm's length in the way it ruled the Gulf. But the history really uh, begs to differ on mm. that. And even when you look at the workforce that was being brought into the Gulf to do a lot of these jobs, it was often people from other parts of the British Empire. And the basis of the sponsorship system, which has a lot of space in it, the kafala system, which has a lot of space in it for abuse, this is the truth. In the, in the way that it can be practiced, it leaves a lot of space for individuals to abuse others. And we see that in the Gulf in terms of um, uh, domestic workers and uh, migrant workers. But the, the, the basis of that as a legal norm was established through the precedent that governed the way people were employed in the Gulf during the years when Britain directly ruled it. And so we also have to be clear that there are varying uh, arrangements of rights. So, for example, in Bahrain, uh, there is no minimum wage. There is no um, limit of the amount of hours that a person can work a day. In Kuwait, there is a minimum wage. In Kuwait, there is, um, for example, a limit on how many hours a person can work a day and how much overtime they can have. That's not to say that it's ideal, right? That's not to say, you know, for instance, in Qatar, there's an industrial area where workers have a completely different quality of life to people in other parts of Qatar. There is the racial hierarchy, we have to be honest, which is established in the Gulf, which has white Western Europeans and Canadians and US and British people as expats, but then people from Southeast Asia, the brown and black people, not all of them, but some brown and black people who work in Qatar and in other places are at a different point in that hierarchy. We also have to remember, right, that this sponsorship system was really the precedent for it was at a time where the British were hoping to remove as much responsibility from themselves to govern that worker-employee relationship. And so it, it has endured in many ways in these places that industrialized very, very quickly um, and were integrated into the global economy, particularly when the oil uh, factor became a part of the equation. And what you also have to remember is that actually throughout the Aramco, Aram, Aramco strikes in the 50s, to the 70s, particularly in Saudi, what you had was workers that were Egyptian, that were Palestinian, that were from the region and able to communicate with the populations that they were around. Now, what happened with many of those situations is they attempted to assert their will through collective bargaining. What was the advice that came from the British? The advice was take people from specific villages in Southeast Asia that do not have a history of trade union organizing and employ them in the oil companies. Mm. And so in terms of as a ruling class, you have the advantage of those people being less able to um, speak to the population and to work with each other for uh, particular objectives to improve their working conditions. So I think for me, it always seemed to be particularly disingenuous mm. when you would have people who in Britain have worked consistently against um, supporting striking workers in this country to be telling us about workers' rights in somewhere like Qatar. And then what we're going to look at really in the rest of the show is the way, unfortunately, a lot of this ties into uh, the geopolitics. Because at any given time, at any point, anywhere in the world, a person can look at those with legitimate grievances in any society which you are hoping to target in an informational warfare kind of way and seize upon their plight in order to harm those people that you are seeking to harm. Now, what we're just trying to um, understand with this episode, is Qatar targeted? If Qatar is targeted, why is it targeted? And who is it targeted by? Because we also have to remember, no one seems to have any moral question 
about the United States having tens of thousands of troops. Literally, U.S. Central Command is based in Qatar, the largest military base in the military in the Middle East. Nobody seems to have any moral question about literally the Ministry of Defense running the British Ministry of Defense running security for the World Cup. Mm. But people seem to have discovered their morality when it comes to the rights of people who absolutely deserve more without a doubt. So I think really the next question I want to ask is... Before you even yeah. jump into that, bro, uh, like how did that materialize in the BBC, the, the way the average layman picked it up, it materialized through the opening ceremony uh, being censored. Yeah. And a lot of people, especially Muslims, were very frustrated by that because the opening ceremony had a lot of fantastic segments in there that really humanized Muslims. There was this segment between, you know, a uh, disabled guy, I think he only had half a body, and Morgan mm. Freeman, that was going viral. That, again you know, it was able to kind of portray a verse of the Quran fantastically. It was done fantastically. And again, it was it was censored, it was missed out because suddenly the BBC have decided that this is something that they are outraged by. Yes, again, selective outrage. And I'll tell you why selective outrage, because the Eurovision Song Contest was in Israel. There's yeah. nothing mentioned there. Precisely. Yeah, there's nothing censored there. There's no boycotting there. Absolutely. You had um, the the previous World Cup that was in Russia. Yeah. In fact, Gary Lineker said himself, and he defended it happening in Russia as well. Oh, football, and uh, you know we can't say anything in England. I'm paraphrasing, of course, yeah. but that was the gist. Oh, we can't say anything. We've done this and we've done that. Okay, brilliant. Yeah. yeah? And then you had the Winter Olympics in China. Yeah. So, what are those? Are, are we suddenly picking and choosing here? Yeah, precisely. Uh, we are picking and choosing. And also, the interesting thing on that subject is literally just the day before the World Cup started, you had the Formula One Grand Prix um, that took place in the Yas Marina circuit in Abu Dhabi. Now, Human Rights Watch had criticized the conditions of workers in Yas Marina, stating that migrant workers are not paid what they are promised, but are trapped, unable to even buy their freedom. Many of the issues of workers' rights um, have been brought up in, uh, in reference to that particular part of Abu Dhabi and the building of that very um, structure. However, not once did you hear any of that mentioned. So what you clearly have and this is interesting because we haven't seen this before, is the distinction between the, the way the BBC interacts with the UAE and the way it interacts with Qatar. Mm. So there's an interesting sort of dynamic wow. and development happening there. So really, David, if you could now break down for us uh, this campaign against Qatar, where does it come from? Uh, what's it about? And who are the, some of the actors involved in it? Let, let's see now if the BBC are going to be consistent. Are they going to adopt the same strategy for the next World Cup, which is going to be taking place in the US, that have interfered in 50 countries since World War II, according to William Bloom, that according to the Senate report 2014, that were doing tortures, that if I was to say your viewers would not be able to sleep at night. Yeah. You can check this yourself, Senate report 2014. Yeah. And Obama casually saying, yeah, we tortured some folks. Yeah. Oh, Loki, we tortured some folks. Yeah. Hey, be okay with that, brother. Yeah. yeah. So it's, yeah. it's like it's, hey, well, oh, hey I mean, what you got to do, mate? Yeah. <laughs> you know, will we start hearing about the plight of people in Guantanamo Bay? Will we start hearing about, you know, the victims of drone strikes? Will we start hearing about all these things when it comes time for the US to host the, you know, will we start hearing about the US military base in Qatar, for example, when the US hosts the World Cup? Very, very, very unlikely. Will we see, you know, when not unlikely, of, I would say not only no, but <laughs> hell to the no. But I mean, when you look at actually the amount of human beings in the world that mobilized against the Iraq war, for example, mm. there's, you know, some say 3 million in Britain um, on one day. Some say overall you had around 30 million people protest against the Iraq war across the world, right? Of all the demonstrations, over 5,000 protests against the Iraq war around the world. At that point, did the U.S. football team suffer any consequences for the actions of their government? 
No, they didn't. So hey, you got to keep football out, mate. Yeah, don't bring look football separate. Yeah, politics is separate, Loki. And, so, and so that's the double standard, really, that we're talking about here. Um, and the interesting thing is, it can even be wielded against the state where there's the largest U.S. military base in the region, and the British military are dealing with the security, not only the security within Qatar, but even dealing with the naval security around yes. the World Cup. So, you know, this is quite interesting what we're seeing developing here. Um, That's why it was interesting when I think three people that were that are mainstream spoke out. You had Piers Morgan, yeah. you had uh, Gary Neville mm-hmm. and then John Barnes. Yeah. Um, so that that was, of course, you know, a breath of fresh air in a sea of misinformation and uh, stirring up, you know, panic and hatred and, you know, all that sort of stuff. So that, that was actually fantastic to hear. And it was, in, it, I, I rate Gary Neville for bringing up certain points as well that I think was quite ballsy of him to mm. do. Like people are, you know, accusing him, but he's saying, look, on the one hand, Prince William's doing this, but on the other hand, you've got Prince Charles accepting donations. Yeah, precisely. <laughs> you precisely. Know? I mean, and also Graham Souness actually said at one point, he said, you know, what about our record in Ireland? Um, who are we to point the finger at others? So it's interesting, all these kind of questions of morality and the relationship between the state and sports and all of these things are kind of coming up. Um yeah, I mean, it would be great to hear from David now about this campaign against Qatar. You know, we're in, in agreement that a campaign was happening, but where did it come from and how did it develop? Maybe David can break that down. So this is a, a, a multi-part campaign. Um, and I, what I'm talking about here is, is state-led campaigns against Qatar having the, uh, the World Cup. Uh, and uh, and those, of course, separate to to other campaigns that which might have been run about uh, um, workers' rights, etc., which I'll touch on later. Now, the, these campaigns are initiated uh, first of all by the state of Israel. Uh, in 2014, they have a demonstration outside the Qatari embassy in London. Two demonstrations, in fact, and these are um, to summarise called by four different Zionist organisations. Now, these are said, said by some people, uh, um, uh, and this has happened on Twitter in the, in the last few days, to, to be simply fringe Zionist groups, which nobody pays attention to, aren't important, and drawing attention to them is in some way uh, anti-Semitic because it's suggesting that the Jews are at the heart of anything. And of course, what I'm talking about here is four specific Zionist organisations, and I can tell you who they are. They are um, Sussex Friends of Israel, the uh, UK Lawyers for Israel, Stand with us in the UK, uh, and a group called the Israeli Forum Task Force, which your uh, viewers will not have heard of, I don't think. Like each of those four uh, organisations has specific direct relationships to the Zionist regime. Sussex Friends of Israel, for example, has had funds from uh, from Israel. UK Lawyers for Israel is uh, thought to have been set up by the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. The Israeli Forum Task Force, which is a kind of prototype organisation for the Zionist groups which attacked Jeremy Corbyn uh, uh, from 2015 when he was elected uh, the, the year after, is a group which was set up uh, by the World Zionist Organization. Now, you don't get much more Zionist than the World Zionist Organization, it being the, the most senior element uh, at the top of the, the global Zionist movement. So, so and stand with us, of course, also an organization uh, um, largely used by the Zionist regime to uh, to um, project power and uh, uh, has direct relationships with the regime over there. The guy involved in, in uh, incidentally, the guy involved in that uh, demonstration back in um, September 2014 was a guy who had also stood against Jeremy Corbyn uh, in a subsequent election and was uh, filmed at the count mouthing the words terrorist sympathizer, uh, for which he got some minor publicity. Of course, he was standing for the party UKIP, which kind of illustrates the politics of the people who were involved in that demonstration, which kicked off many of the uh, the uh, anti-Qatar uh, campaigns. I should also mention, however, that that, uh, that the right-wing politics goes a little bit further than that. One of the one of the people there in in her uh, orange boiler suit was a woman, uh, you know, complaining about. Uh, uh, Qatari uh, uh, support for terrorism was a woman called Gemma Sheridan. Now, Gemma Sheridan 
is known in right-wing circles in the UK as being a supporter of the Jewish Defence League, uh, you know, the extreme organisation which was declared to be a terrorist organisation by the FBI in 2001, which was, you know, eventually its, its party political uh, um, uh, out, out, outpost, uh, the party set up by Mayor Kahani uh, in Israel, was banned, actually, um, by the Zionist regime itself. <laughs> because it was so extreme, so that there, there are these people who are who are supporters of of organisations regarded even by Western powers as being terrorists, who are there to complain about the support, the alleged support for terrorism uh, issuing from Qatar, and that's of course the reason why they were there. I mean, they were there uh, uh, because they object to the uh, Qatar regime's uh, government's uh, support. Uh, ongoing support uh, for the Palestinian resistance, uh, for for Hamas and for other Palestinian factions uh, over over the years, and that's a that's a key reason why why, why the Israelis started this campaign and why they continue with it. Uh, another reason, which which we can come on to, is of course the the main thing which Qatar is known for prior to the World Cup, which is Al Jazeera, the Al Jazeera network, of course, was the the number one demand uh, um, in a in a blockade which was created by a, a number of um, uh, nations in the region in 2017, this is taking the campaign on a little bit further, and those were Egypt, the United Arab Emirates, uh, the Saudis and Bahrain, and they created this blockade uh, against Qatar, and uh, they had some they had some 13 points on their uh, demands to lift the blockade, and number one on the list of demands was that, that uh, they had to shut down Al Jazeera. <laughs> it's really extraordinary that the, 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 this terrible nation, which was about apparently supporting terrorism, you know, the main main problem with it, according to these people, was that it had a, a media network which um, which uh, circulated inconvenient facts on the the uh, abuses of the Saudis and the UAE. Now, of course, in this country, uh, um, in the UK, uh, Al Jazeera is not liked because of its uh, uh, its history of doing work on the on the Israel lobby. I mean, we saw the the lobby program uh, it broke on the the Israel lobby in the UK. Then there was, of course, one on the US, which was eventually not not broadcast on on Al Jazeera because of pressure on the on the government from uh, from the Israelis and others. And then more recently, in the last few weeks, we've had the Labour files showing the way in which. Um, uh, the the uh, the Corbyn-led Labour Party was attacked um, by uh, by by pro-Israel supporters, uh, and that uh, the, the, that um, these files show the way in which um, a huge number of people were uh, evicted from the Labour Party on on completely false pretenses. So again, Al Jazeera not regarded uh, very positively in this country as a result of that, and that's part partly why. You have these. Uh, uh, you have the, the 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 arguments on the left here about well, we should we should boycott Qatar and we should boycott boycott the World Cup. We shouldn't be watching it. Although most of those complaints uh, have subsequently died down in the last few weeks as the the uh, the World Cup has has continued. So there we have quite a meticulous breakdown from David, but also there's the role played by Khalid Al Hain and the Foundation for Sports Integrity. I'd quite like to hear it. Is that the name of the organisation, David? The Foundation for Sports Integrity was the organisation he set up. And, of course, paraded at this event were key Israel lobby stalwarts, including the guy, one of the guys who is um, uh, key to the the attempt by by England to, to host the World Cup, who is, of course, also uh, an Israel lobbyist and uh, a key part of the Jewish Leadership Council, uh, uh, the, the kind of Uber uh, uh, Israel lobbying organization in the UK. Another person there um, was Alan Mendoza, who, of course, is a key figure in the Henry Jackson Society, one of the uh, most significant Islamophobic think tanks in this country. Uh, he also is a vice president of the Jewish National Fund UK, which is the, the British um, branch of the Jewish National Fund uh, based in uh, in uh, uh, in King George Street uh, in, in Jerusalem, which has been involved from the very beginning of the Zionist movement um, from the turn of the 20th century uh, in um, uh, be, being an agency, as Elan Papi puts it, of ethnic cleansing. So it's involved in, in um, g- gaining land and uh, 
cleansing Palestinians from it. All right, low key. Uh, I think we should get David a spot on fire in the booth because <laughs> 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 he's dropping some serious bars. <laughs> but they definitely censor him. If they censor Mike Righteous with the Free Come Palestine, on. they're going to censor David. But um, <laughs> but um, interestingly, David points out there the JNF um, UK, which is part of the largest settlement building organization in Palestine. The interesting thing about the extent to which the British establishment is sort of intertwined with some of these organizations is that Tony Blair and Gordon Brown are patrons of the JNF UK. Mm. I mean, simultaneous to Tony Blair being a Middle East peace envoy, he's a patron of an organization that builds settlements and actually ethnically cleanses people. And then also, you know, David Cameron actually had to step down at his role at the JNF um, when he became prime minister. So this is the extent to which the British establishment is really wrapped up in these things. Now, David, just a last question for you before we move on. What do you make of the charge that some have leveled of fake news in regards to Qatar? What can you talk to us? What can you tell us about, um, some of, uh, about examples of some of this stuff? More recently in 2021, The Guardian, came out with this report which said that uh, 6,500 migrant workers had died uh, in, the, in the course of the uh, the World Cup construction process. And this was a, a report which there was significant pushback from uh, from the government, from the Qatar government, um, and the report was changed three times, uh, including to add a, a, a passage from the, the government saying that, you know, that uh, um, only 20% of the, of the, the workers who are being described in the Guardian's figures are construction workers, the rest are white-collar workers, and uh, most of the deaths occurred in white-collar workers, not in the construction workers. So you can already see that there's been an attempt to ratchet up and talk up the number of deaths. Uh, and, that, of course, the reason for that is, is, is transparently geopolitical. But I wanted to just leave you with a, a little snippet about that Guardian report, uh, not just that it was inaccurate, but that it, it was part of a sponsored series in the Guardian, um, uh, sponsored by an organisation called Humanity United, which is set up by uh, Pierre Omidyar, the, the philanthropist, regime change philanthropist, uh, and who, which works closely with the National Endowment for Democracy and uh, USAID in, in doing regime change work in Syria and Zimbabwe and Ukraine and, and many other places. So we, we can see, you know, I think quite clearly that what we're dealing with here in terms of the LB G, uh, QT uh, issued in terms of the workers' rights issue, in terms of the terrorism issue. What we're dealing with here is uh, is Western nations, uh, preferably Islamophobic nations, um, in almost every case, trying to target uh, the Qataris uh, for geopolitical reasons. Now, the reasons that they're, they're doing that is not because the Qatar government is insensible to and doesn't go along with the West and many things. It does, and as, as everyone remembers. There's a massive US army base there. Uh, and indeed, during the World Cup, um, the, the the government has ceded control of both the of marine security and, and uh, uh, air security to the British military. The British military actually has a contract to run the, the counter-terrorism activities in the air and in, uh, in the terms of maritime security. With, with the government. What we have there from David really laid out in this, uh, this conversation about this particular article, which has actually had a lot of traction. And the article's headline is that 6,500 workers in Qatar have died since the World Cup was awarded to Qatar in 2010. So that's a cross period of 10 to 11 years. What it doesn't specify and spell out is that that 6,500 figure is all causes of death. So included among those people that died are people that died from COVID. No people, way. Yes, are people that died in a myriad of ways. But yet the implication wow. when you look at the power of suggestion wow. is that actually these are people that died building the stadiums when that is absolutely categorically not true and very, very far from the truth. I mean, there are estimations by, you know, uh, people in the Qatari government have said 30 or so or mm. less. You know, that's obviously, it's, there's, there's too many. People shouldn't yeah. be dying in their places of work. 
But in previous World Cups building the stadiums in Russia, people died. Previous World Cups in Brazil, people died. Mm. Previous World Cups building the stadiums in South Africa, people died. This is absolutely terrible and abhorrent. Yes. But there is a significant difference between 6,500 people mm-hmm. and the way that number was banded about and, uh, you know, a smaller number. There were people. actually more numbers given. 6,500 was, I would say, in, in the later kind of discussions earlier, it was... 8,000 and stuff like that. It was yeah. a ridiculous amount. So, so this is a game. You know, there's a game being played here. There's a psychological warfare campaign being waged and there seems to be a reason. And with David kind of painting the picture that is related to Al Jazeera, which is a major... Um, political power really in the region and across the world and definitely upset the British establishment no end with the labor files without a doubt. Mm -hmm. David also points out the organization Humanity United. So this Guardian article was published as a sponsored article by Humanity United. Now Humanity United was founded by Pierre Midyar. Now Pierre Midyar has a very, very close relationship with the Anti-Defamation League, which is an Israel lobby group, which has spied on thousands of activists before and sold the information that it gleaned from this spying to not only the apartheid regime in South Africa, but also to Israel. Pierre Midjar funds a uh, digital um, center for the ADL. And of course, the ADL are trusted flaggers on YouTube, which means that you have an Israel lobby group um, wielding a huge amount of power um, at YouTube. Is this conspiracy theorist, Loki? Because some people might be watching this and going, nah, where is he getting this from? It's a conspiracy. No, it's a fact. It's been documented by the ADL themselves. And, oh, and so I mean, uh, <laughs> yeah. It's, I mean, it's, uh, <laughs> if the guys themselves are saying that, I mean. Exactly. Yeah, it's a fact. So we're going to move on from that. I think we've given a very good overlay of the anatomy of this campaign against Qatar. We've looked at how that's happened. We looked at why it might be happening. I think we've also given some interesting, put some interesting flesh on the bones of some of those questions of workers' rights um, in the Gulf in general. And And that injection of ADL and uh, YouTube, that's going to (laughs) sting for a while, bro. Absolutely. And I think we should move on to uh, this question of Jordan Peterson, because, you know, Peterson signed, um, I imagine, a lucrative deal with the Daily Wire fairly recently. It's worth noting that the chief operating officer of the Daily Wire is none other than John Lewis, who is a former intelligence analyst in the U.S. Marine Corps. And also the organization employs a former U.S. military intelligence officer, Wesley Schmidt, in customer service analytics, whatever that means. That means he'll be looking at the the details of, uh, of people that use the Daily Wire and subscribe to it. Now, it's important to remember that the founder of the Daily Wire um, there's two of them. There's Jeremy Boring, who we'll talk about a little bit later, but also yeah, sorry, Jeremy. <laughs> Jeremy Boring, <laughs> but, also, but also Ben Shapiro. Now, Ben Shapiro is somebody who was a Shillman Fellow at the David Horowitz Freedom Center. David Horowitz Freedom Center, which employed Tommy Robinson, which also employed Katie Hopkins. Um, and Tommy Robinson was a Shillman Fellow at the David Horowitz Freedom Center. At the same time, Ben Shapiro was a Shillman Fellow at the David Horowitz Freedom Center, meaning that both of their positions were funded directly by somebody on the board of the Friends of the IDF, Robert Shillman, who also funds the Zionist Organization of America and other key settlement building organizations also. Now, Ben Shapiro, on the very same day that Jordan Peterson put out his uh, message to Muslims, uh, Ben Shapiro put out an interview uh, with someone by the name of Aria Lightstone. Now, Aria Lightstone um, is the U.S. Special Envoy for Economic Normalization. So he is somebody that is tasked by the U.S. government helping Israel integrate its economies with uh, governments like the government of Sudan, like Morocco, um, and uh, the UAE, and others. Now, what we know is that the other founder of the Daily Wire, uh, Jeremy Boring, was also essential in the development of Prager University. Now, Prager University, massive YouTube channel 
founded by Dennis Prager, an Israel lobbyist himself, and also headed by the CEO, Marissa Strait, who is an ex-agent of the infamous Israeli military intelligence unit 8200. Now, 8200's work, we speak about quite a lot on this show. It focuses on monitoring the electronic communications of Palestinians and using that information to blackmail them and try and convert them into collaborators with the Israeli military. Yeah. First time I've heard about that. That's mad. Yeah. And so this is the kind of background to the uh, Daily Wire and the employer of Jordan Peterson. He also has... uh, key relationships with people inside the um, uh, the Abraham Global Peace Initiative, um, which includes um, uh, Mr. Tawhidi, uh, who calls himself the Imam of Peace. Um, it includes several other key Israel lobbyists, and they have engaged uh, Jordan Peterson. He has clear connections to this organization. So then the question is, at the point where he makes the message to Muslims, he's clearly trying to, uh, you know, with the use of nudge psychology, Mm. push people towards normalization with Israel in quite a sophisticated way. But then the other aspect of what he's done is he seems to have been enlisted not only in whitewashing Benjamin Netanyahu, which I actually think was a strategic mistake on his part because it removes it removes the ability to use a cloak of ambiguity over what he does. Yes. It, It removes his ability to be able to claim this is about a personal pursuit of truth and the way in which he interacted with Benjamin Netanyahu regularly laying him up attempting to strengthen Netanyahu's points Mm -hmm. this is not a a kind of interview in a traditional sense it's more like the kind of podcast that I do so I'll invite people on who broadly we agree we may have one or two things that we're not necessarily completely in agreement on but generally i will try and strengthen the points of my guest and so what he's doing with netanyahu is he's bringing him on netanyahu's stumbling at some point (laughs) and peterson is coming in to strengthen the point and then even provide a slightly lighter way of saying what netanyahu wants to say and at the point where netanyahu outright denies uh palestinian presence prior to Israel, it goes completely unchallenged by Peterson. To my mind, he has been integrated into several key pushes. And those two pushes are the normalization with Israel in the region. And then more worryingly and dangerously is the push to replace Al-Aqsa with Mm. what they call the the, uh, third Jewish temple. and this is quite dangerous. So, you know, you've had an interesting angle from which you've viewed this uh, development of Jordan Peterson and his ideas and his integration into the Israeli project. Um, it would just be good to get your perspective on it. I mean, that discussion was appalling, frankly. Yes, the blind leading the blind. And there are just so many, so so many fundamental flaws that I know people that, know more about this situation like yourself you would have been pulling out your <laughs> your beard <laughs> so you would have been pulling out any hair that you can you know get your hand on because that must have been infuriating for you for for people like myself even i was infuriated but you have like the burden of knowledge so for you it just every second of that would have been just like just getting triggered i mean a few things that 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 even i mean when he started off he started off by saying oh the young palestinians it seems that you know they don't know they've got certain grievances and this and that so already from the outset he's made his audience he's made his kind of um a dynamic clear that he's not referring to the people that actually have knowledge. He's trying to indoctrinate and refer to people that are lacking in knowledge, that are more impressionable and susceptible, and he wants to feed them with his class A bullcrap, frankly. And he does that by, (laughs) ironically, making massive blunders, quoting Mark Twain, when we know from the copious literature of Mark Twain uh, many academics even regard him as an anti-Semite because of the the, the the categorical stuff that he said against Jews. But the fact that he's even brought that up shows the 
the jihalat, the absolute ignorance of, of these individuals, on top of that insinuating that it's somehow a Jewish and Muslim issue, when we know that's absolutely not the case when you look at the um, Ottoman Empire, when you look at the Muslims in Andalus, the Muslim rule of Spain, you've got people like Maimonides and even Sheikh Jarrah, the personal mm. physician of of uh, of Saladin, Salahuddin. yeah, Salahuddin. Um, so I mean, that is just there's just copious works and uh, and and books written on this that I simply just cannot do justice to on this mm. podcast. But even if you if you look at this whole. Okay, maybe it's Israel versus Palestine. But again, you're presupposing that Israel was an entity and it existed. And that's, again, absolutely not the case. Yeah. It's not to do with Israel versus Palestine. Rather, it's to do with Palestine and settler colonialism. Yeah. And that's something that needs to be written down, tattooed, mm. you know what I'm saying, branded, whatever. Go ahead, bro. Interesting on that point you make um, about this sort of uh, history is that you actually have a crater on the moon called Mashallah. But it's not, Mashallah. Named, it's not named after a Muslim. It's named after Mashallah ibn Athari, who was a Jewish polymath um, in Baghdad a thousand no way. years ago. Yeah. So there's something that might surprise Mr. Peterson. Oh, but I wow. think the, the thing that's a bit um, interesting about the way he's been integrated into these plans is he has this... Uh, push with Al-Aqsa where he's attempting to make arguments that are being used to pave the way for this project which is the Temple Mount project now this is not a conspiracy theory this is something that an Israeli army radio investigation in 2013 found that these organizations, specifically the Temple Institute, which has the stated objective of replacing Al-Aqsa, replacing the compound with the third temple in, 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 in this idea of this organization, um, not only is it being funded by the Israeli Ministry of Culture and the Israeli Ministry of Education for 20 plus years, the Israeli government even offers membership of the Temple Institute as an alternative to conscription in the Israeli military for women. And just how um, unambiguous this organization is about its intention, I really, I can't overstate. It makes very clear in all of its literature that the plan is to demolish the compound of Al-Aqsa and replace those two masjids with uh, a temple. Now, this has support from key figures within the Israeli political class and also key levers of the Israeli state. Now, this is something that Ben Shapiro also is working towards, and he's made clear in his statements that he supports this idea. So when Jordan Peterson tries to depict what he does as somehow a sort of... Uh, well-intentioned fact-finding mission that's not the case you are attempting you are accompanying somebody who is a fully signed up adherent to the idea that this compound should be demolished you are accompanying him and the israeli military into al-aqsa on this trip you are party to this crime and mm. i think one of the biggest problems that we've had I've been guilty of it. It's understandable. When we look at footage of Al-Aqsa, we see the Israeli military in there. We see some of the settlers in there. We say, isn't it horrible that they're going in there? But what we don't do is look back at the ideological trajectory, not only that has led these people to that place, but also led the, the political entity, the political unit of Israel to be facilitating this kind of stuff because it wasn't always the way. These are groups of people that in the past have attempted to blow up mm. Al-Aqsa. These are groups of people that have been um, clashing with the Israeli state historically. So this is the part of Zionism that Ben Shapiro represents and is clearly aligned to. And through his um, signing of a contract with this company and clear enlistment in these propaganda campaigns, Jordan Peterson is part of the same thing. Mm. 
Mm. So they're using, they're wielding the idea of religious tolerance as a tamhid, as they say, as a um, precursor, as a precursor to this massively destructive action, which they have clear plans to carry out. And so I think it's really important that as many young people as possible understand what we are actually facing and what is being planned um, so we can actually respond as effectively as possible mm. to this. And so really just to um, really take us home, because we do have to wrap up, we could talk forever and all night. And, you know, unfortunately, we are probably going to have to edit this quite a bit because we're going to have to fit into an hour, especially with uh, David Miller live connected to us talking away. Um, <laughs> Damn it, Dave. <laughs> my, my, my last question is, do you personally have a message to Jordan Peterson? My message to Jordan Peterson is if you are a genuine individual that have just been caught up peer pressure in the wrong crowd, there have been ample videos and ample articles and ample uh, literature out there that have detailed the link of Daily Wire with the IDF, with nefarious organizations that are not working for a cohesive relationship between um, Arabs and non-Arabs, Muslims and non-Muslims. It's, I mean, if you are genuine, and even now is the time to step back and say, you know what, I was mistaken. I made a mistake. I didn't know. I'm going through stuff. Wallahu alam, Allah knows best. Whatever it is, people can make mistakes. Turn back and apologize and distance yourself. Like, you know, they say barge pole. Yeah, from individuals like this who have real nefarious intentions about what to do and the fitna and the, the trials and tribulations that are going to accompany these things. Because the Muslim Ummah will not sit back idly and see Aqsa being destroyed. It will cause uh, ripples and responses and it's, it's, it's not good. We don't want to provoke people into doing stuff, especially when sentiments and, and there are links. That's the third holiest site in the Islamic faith. And the first Qibla. The first Qibla, that's the direction towards that, that every single Muslim on the planet would pray. That direction. Now it's the Kaaba before it was Aqsa. So I would say to him, look, don't get stressed out and you know triggered with these comments think where are they coming from what's the cause and i'm sorry but everything that's mentioned here with regards to um the the third temple uh, plans and the israeli army given as the um as the evidence youtube linked with adl i mean the the amount of name name drops that you gave here, bro, they, they were bars upon bars. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, true. I don't know how many bars were dropped over here, but there were so many names that you can take from this. And it was pure academia. So I would say humbly, like, look into this and distance yourself if you are a genuine person. If not, then it's clear. Then come out and say, this is what I want to do. Not, oh, I, I genuinely want to learn. Because in that podcast with Netanyahu, he's implying that Palestine didn't exist. The Israelis just came and the, the Jewish community just came to empty land. When we know that there are places like uh, Tiberias and, you know, you know, with 21 villages and there were, you know, I just wanted to share this because it, it's, it's just amazing Moshe Dayan, who was a, yeah. uh, a, a commander that was fighting under the first prime minister, Ben mm. Ben-Gurion, he said that there is not a single place where Jews settled where Arabs were not before. Yeah. Not a single, single place. Yeah. And then there are four examples, like Mahlul became Nahlal. And you know what? You can look at the Manshia district that had 12,000 residents. And in Manshia is where they held the Eurovision village. So we've taken full circle. So you had the Eurovision Song Contest literally on the remains of Al-Manshia, a Palestinian village that was deleted from existence, and no one said anything. That's why your moral acrobatics, 
do not impress us. We are the war on terror generation. We are the Schedule 7 generation. Mm. We are the generation in which the Magna Carta and habeas corpus were rendered complete non-entities. You can't preach to us about morals. <laughs> I mean, we can go on forever. I mean, there's even uh, the Balfour himself said, the indigenous majority population were Arabs. You've got the father of history, according to Cicero, uh, Herodotus. Yeah. He, in 450 BC, he's saying, yeah, 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 they're the Palestinians. And it, they ref it's referred to as Palestine, yeah. inhabited by Palestinians. You've got coinage. There's copious evidences. But again, it's like you said at the beginning, uh, 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 it's, it's the youth. It's the youth that, that I want to speak to, that, that hold these things. It's coming from somewhere and it's coming from your ignorance. Yeah. The blind being led by the blind. Yeah. I mean, I'm sorry, you cannot say this. Like you said, we're the war on terror generation. We're forced to look at this sort of stuff. And you know what? I feel for our youth and hopefully people will take clips from this podcast and circulate it because it's very important. Some of the name drops over here, do your YouTube shorts and, you know, subtitle everything and bring the names up and everything. It's, it's very, very important. Very, very important. Thank you, bro. I appreciate you joining us today. This has been me, Low Key. Thank you so much to Smile to Jenna. I hope you check out his channel. And also thank you to David Miller live with us down the line.